Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Ria Cheruvu. Ria is an artificial intelligence lead architect at Intel, where she's developing trustworthy AI solutions for Intel's Internet of Things engineering group. Her domains of expertise include solutions for security and privacy, for machine learning, fairness, explainable and responsible AI systems, uncertain AI, reinforcement learning, and computational models of intelligence. She's also developed an ethical AI course for Udacity. And to round out her experience, Rhea is a, a published poet, a children's book author, and a neuroscience enthusiast to boot. Rhea, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you, Peter. Likewise, really excited to be here. Wonderful. Well, maybe take a quick moment, if you would. I, I, I gave a bit of a thumbnail sketch as to your, your role and responsibility, uh, but I wonder if you could maybe take a moment more and describe your purview as an AI lead architect at Intel. Sure. So as part of my day-to-day -day role, I like to break it down into three different categories of the responsibilities that I take on. Uh, the first one is your regular you know, software development, being able to manage a team and, and various products that are coming out there um, in a couple of spaces um, and subdomains in the trustworthy AI domain. So really, um, a lot of what we focus on is being able to develop technologies that help AI models be more explainable and also starting to think about and consider what developers are really looking for in solutions that accompany AI models. Um, that's kind of the first uh, subset of, of things that I like to work on. The second subset is really on compliance, which is always critical for ethical AI. Um, it's something that we look at um, for an end-to-end -end AI lifecycle and try to identify what's really going on in the different segments and how we can help developers encourage and practice ethical AI in a way that also doesn't impact the business um, or, you know, helps us streamline our processes in an efficient way. And the third angle, which I'm very interested in, um, and is something that I'm ramping up on constantly, is the regulatory landscape, which is engaging with different organizations and standards bodies in order to ensure that we have national and international outlooks for AI that are represented by different parties that are really considering the impacts and the harms of AI systems and what we can do to mitigate these harms. A great overview. I appreciate that. Uh, and I wonder if we can maybe double click on a couple of those items that you mentioned. Um, you, you talked about AI models being more explainable. Uh, talk a bit about what that entails. Uh, the, the words certainly are, are recognizable, but would love to understand the context a little bit further. Yeah. So explainable AI is really out there right now. It's, um, you know, you could say it's, it's kind of as part of the hype cycle. Um, and, you know, it, it definitely is identified as such. Um, explainable AI is really around being able to understand the processes, the control mechanisms, and uh, the decision-making that AI systems are helping influence. Um, it's a broad variety of things, and actually this is why, you know, regulations and upcoming guidelines in this space are really helping us narrow down what explainable AI means, uh, because there's a lot of other terms that relate. Let's actually take transparency as an example. Transparency is like a fundamental principle that we all are kind of aware of. When it comes to applying it to AI systems, um, you know, it can mean or imply uh, being able to better understand where an AI system is positioned in a particular context, how it's influencing an organization and the customers and end users. But explainable AI often takes that very broad principle and focuses individually on the AI model, its inputs and outputs, and mechanisms that, again, we can use to, to explain what the model is doing to different personas. There's another definition that comes out of this that's very popular called interpretable AI. Um, some people use it interchangeably. Um, many others kind of argue that they should be kept separate. Uh, interpretability is really going, you know, even deeper into the internals of an AI model and trying to understand, you know, what do the layers look like? What do the parameters look like? And how is that influencing the output? So a lot of 
uncertainty around where these definitions are going, but many different expert teams that are working on getting us to the right definitions, all in all to be able to understand why AI models are making decisions um, to kind of demystify the black box, but also to encourage good, uh, responsible data science and explainable AI and AI best practices from the ground up so we know what we're achieving when we develop AI. And I want to talk a little bit about, about AI ethics, if you don't mind. I know a topic that you, you're also fully immersed in uh, as well. Uh, talk a bit about your own thoughts about ethical AI and areas that you're focused on to, to help achieve it. So I think to, to be straightforward, um, ethical AI sometimes puts a lot of people off because it is not as technical a term as many people are used to. Um, in fact, when I was first constructing my title, you know, there's um, a lot of, you know, meaning that's associated with something around, you know, working in the domains of explainable AI, um, you know, and, and trustworthy AI. There are more tangible domains and definitions as seen by the public and, and various different, you know, stakeholders uh, compared to ethical AI. But really the way that I see it is, um, ethical AI is really pulling together all of these different domains. Um, it's, you know, kind of best summarized as socio-technical development of AI systems, where we have on one hand the very huge growth in the use of AI systems, you know, the release of them, the deployment applications, et cetera. Um, but on the other side, we have the societal impact, whether that's public's concerns around AI overtaking jobs or, you know, just the, the overall surprise on the capabilities that AI systems are exhibiting, and also the uncertainty around where these systems are headed, and how do we control them? How do we prevent um, the use of AI for manipulative power dynamics um, by, you know, different organizations? So ethical AI, to me, is really tying together all these different components, and one really good example I like to give is actually the human-centered AI domain. Um, again, it's a very, very interesting domain that's nestled between different uh, subdomains of trustworthy and ethical AI, um, but it's such an interesting thing to think about when we're designing robots and, you know, you know, interactive kiosks and other types of applications. How do we make these systems more user-friendly and user, you know, appealing um, while also, you know, keeping the technological capability, growing it and making it understandable to the users who are interacting with it? How much information do we provide before it becomes, you know, an overload? All of these concepts and the right stakeholders for them, they don't just come from the technical domain. They come from, you know, user experience uh, professionals. They come from psychologists and, and a bright, you know, wide variety of, of stakeholders. So that's why ethical AI to me is really that the landscape overview of, you know, harms of AI, how we're going to mitigate them, and also the benefits of AI and how we are helping the public perceive those um, in an accurate manner and also taking into account their concerns and working for AI systems for good. Yeah, and, and talk a bit about that value proposition. You mentioned that um, you know a lot of people are put off by the, by the term for a variety of reasons, and perhaps ignorance is one of them. Uh, talk a bit about, uh, you know, perhaps lift the veil a bit, a bit further on the value proposition associated with the topic. Yeah, uh, and I think, you know, um, one of the key things where ethical AI kind of comes in is part of sustainable development goals, right? It's, you know, a key part of, of you know, ESG-related topics, and um, you see it kind of pop in there. Um, and again, the, the beauty with ethical AI is you, you look at it from different perspectives and you get different results, but that's also where, you know, the confusion and I think the, a lot of the complexity arises. When we look at ethical AI, um, we're often thinking about, you know, the, the ultimate objectives around it, which is, you know, again, as I mentioned, you know, the catchphrase, AI for social good, being able to develop AI systems towards this ultimate goal. And really from that angle, um, there's, you know, a rising value prop towards being able to address the impact of these algorithms on humanity as a whole. It's a very big kind of value prop that some organizations endorse and embrace as others are trying to, you know, um, you know, come up and, and start to understand it further. 
If we drill down into individual domains of ethical AI, though, we're seeing a lot of intersections with the nitty gritty, which have their own value propositions. Uh, for example, privacy, security, and safety, very, very big domains in their own right, particularly when it comes to AI models, whether it's, you know, reverse engineering sensitive data that's provided as input to AI systems, or, you know, the just, you know, in general, un, you know, lack of reliability that we have with AI systems when we're, um, you know, positioning them in these great places, but they're also capable of making, you know, very dangerous decisions. Um, and, you know, the, the lack of reliability there is, you know, concerning from a safety angle. I'm thinking, you know, FUSA or, you know, industrial robotics related, you know, applications as well, as a matter of fact, right? So as part of that, the value propositions become very singular. It's a matter of, you know, human lives in certain cases when we're thinking about, you know, robot arms and, and lack of reliability on what AI models predictions would be. Um, when it comes to privacy and safety, it's about IP and, you know, loss of revenue, lack of trust from, you know, different stakeholders and from customers. So there's a lot of different individual value props when it comes to uh, subdomains of ethical and trustworthy AI that I believe are important to consider in the bigger picture. Um, trust is definitely one of them. That's why trustworthy AI is such a big part of, of what we do, um, because it has the ability to impact all these downstream things like, you know, revenue, um, IP loss, um, and in general, you know, destructive capabilities. So, you know, that's a, a quick summary of, of how, you know, uh, I and, and many experts that I've learned from like to look at the value prop and the different distinguished uh, ways that we look at it when it comes to ethical AI. You mentioned among the areas that you focus on is the regulatory landscape, which needless to say, uh, is ever evolving. Uh, it, it, it's, it requires a, a constant monitoring, no doubt, and, and education and re-education associated with the changes that are regularly afoot, I would imagine. Talk a bit about, um, about that work and talk a bit about the role you see government playing in driving what you have described. The government is definitely playing a very big role. Uh, if we have this conversation, you know, maybe a couple of months ago or even, you know, a couple, like one to two years ago, um, my answer would have been very different. And it, it definitely has been, which is, you know, um, previously the answer has been, you know, regulations are still very, very nascent. Um, there's not, you know, there's a lot being done there, a lot of conversations going on, um, but, you know, it'll take some time. And while that answer and elements of it still hold true today, uh, we're seeing, you know, an exponential, you know, you can put whatever term that you'd like to it, growth in, you know, the way that these regulatory guidelines are being narrowed down. One of the awesome uh, transitions that I really love to see, um, Peter, in this space is actually the transition from, you know, guidelines and high level, you know, documents about definitions of ethical and explainable AI, for example, as I was mentioning earlier, to playbooks. Um, you know, to actual guidelines that practitioners, um, business leaders, and, you know, different stakeholders can actually implement right at the get-go. So, um, you know, from my point of view, I'm very heavily on, you know, the technical side, so I'll, I'll just speak to that component of it. Um, you know, we are actually seeing, um, you know, practitioners providing input into these standards to be able to say, you know, for example, um, having a 100% robust and fair AI pipeline is probably impossible um, for all use cases. So, you know, you, you need to give us some guidelines, some room, essentially, for us to be able to implement certain things. And similarly, in the explainable AI space, it's fascinating. You know, um, every day, almost, 
you know, researchers are developing and identifying both the benefits of explainable AI methods, but also the trade-offs and how dangerous it can be to rely on these ethical and trustworthy AI mechanisms we're building for AI, how dangerous it can be to rely on some of them alone, um, and how important it is to have a holistic perspective and the right people at the table, again, not just the technical developers. So that's why I see, you know, the regulatory landscape definitely changing. Things are still very nascent. We're seeing, you know, a lot of things coming up with the EU AI Act, NIST AI risk management framework, which recently came out um, and something that my team has also been an active kind of contributor to, um, along with a couple other stakeholders stakeholders in Intel and, and across industry. But, um, you know, the, the translation to the playbooks, the guidelines, the, the actionable steps that need to be done and the workshops that are being held as well, um, just to, you know, see what exactly is feasible and what isn't. That I think is definitely crucial going forward. We're seeing a lot of prevalence of that. Um, it can continue to improve, definitely. Um, but that's, I think, what is going to get us to very formal guardrails for AI systems that we can start to implement. Many problems associated with that, but also, you know, there's a level of optimism we need uh, to be able to see these evolve into something that's actionable, something we can put forth and enforce as part of organizations and products today. Mm. I wonder if you take a moment to describe the team that you're a part of. And, you know, this is such a, an interesting topic and, and fast evolving topic. What sorts of skills do, do, do the people across the team possess as well? We'd love, we'd love an overview, please. Uh, I um, lead an engineering team, um, you know, just specific to the explainable AI deliverables that we're working on that are fantastic. Um, they're bringing in a lot of very great ideas and perspectives. I think um, the beauty with a small team is, you know, you're, you're working, you're, you're agile, you're fast, you're also incorporating a bunch of different ideas. But um, there's also that benefit of having that extended team, which is really the team members that we're networking with across uh, Intel and also across the industry. It's really the partners and the customers that we're communicating with that are also providing feedback into the technologies and, and giving us some very interesting feedback, things that we would not have thought about. So um, again, you know, my uh, small, like smaller, smaller engineering team uh, works on our explainable AI products. We interface with a much, much broader responsible AI and ethical AI team um, consisting of many smaller sub teams across Intel um, that are looking at different subsets. Again, you know, we have our dedicated engineering teams that we constantly collaborate with. You know, there's you know, folks from all around the world that we're collaborating with um, to get these technologies out. Again, they all have their different perspectives, whether it's responding to different products or uh, to different ideas and different enablement strategies and deployment applications. Uh, we also have our teams focused exclusively on compliance and on creating guardrails for um, you know, Intel and AI employees to be able to, to identify, understand, and help apply. Um, and third, you know, we have those teams that are focusing exclusively on regulations and that are really engaging with all of the different stakeholders that I'm mentioning here to make sure that you know, our contributions are, are getting out there. Um, and as part of that, I, I definitely you know, want to recognize our customer enablement teams as well who are keeping up with kind of the rapid space of, of AI and trustworthy AI and, and helping us also bridge with professionals that are you know, in organizations that are outside of Intel, allowing us to kind of get that connection, figure out what, you know, we're thinking and help drive an open ecosystem. So there's definitely a lot of stakeholders that we are um, talking to within Intel um, that, you know, we're interfacing with externally as part of these workshops, collaborations and communications and partnerships. Um, and it, it will continue to grow because in the end, you know, ethical and trustworthy AI is interestingly a shared objective amongst many of us, it's growing, you know, the value prop is definitely getting recognized in different segments and it's being um, up-leveled in the best kind of way, I would say. So that type of collaboration is just amazing to see um, and to see the different ideas that come out of that that address the number of different concerns that we're getting. So, yeah. 
You, you mentioned the broader ecosystem. We talked about government before, of course, uh, industry, academia, um, uh, you know, a variety of other partners, I would imagine, that you bring, bring together in order to deliver what you've described. Can you talk a bit about how you think about the development of an, a, a robust ecosystem to help uh, deliver uh, all, all that you've discussed? Yes, and I, I know I didn't comment that well on uh, the government's role earlier, but I actually think, you know, to see the government and, you know, those types of, um, you know, like organizations that are orchestrating these types of items. I'm also talking about, for example, nonprofits or um, consortiums and coalitions, right, as well, that are feeding into um, government bodies' uh, guidelines and, you know, regulations. I think there's a, a great level of collaboration that's going on, uh, Peter, that is really worth to reflect on. Um, if we're thinking about partners from academia, industry, and, you know, um, multiple different types of, of um, you know, organizations. Um, they're also, again, coming in with diverse perspective and, and things that we really hadn't thought about previously. Um, and a great example of this is what I mentioned previously, which is, you know, as part of regulations, um, and, you know, with the development of AI and trustworthy AI technologies, we have a number of different methods that we're trying to work on um, and that eventually need to be included as part of practical guidelines that practitioners need to incorporate and that, again, you know, business leaders need to adopt, service integrators and other stakeholders need to, to think about and end users also need to be okay with, whether that's the public or whether, you know, it's, you know, people who aren't necessarily laymen at AI or, or similar. So a lot of different stakeholders in the mix um, especially when you consider the breadth of the AI lifecycle. Just for one model, you've got at least five different, you know, stages or subphases from, you know, data collection and acquisition, right, um, and storage all the way to model development, model training, validation, um, and all of that, and then moving on to, you know, testing and then deployment. It's, it's a very big lifecycle for a lot of AI models um, and a lot of capabilities that they enable. So definitely we're seeing the different stakeholders contribute different parts of the pictures. For example, academia is really contributing a, a, I would say, I like to say, it's like a critical eye towards these technologies, but it's also helping push the state of the art. There's a very careful balance that we need to, to play there. Um, and industry is actually consuming a lot of that and being able to put it into products and see how it works in applications. And again, you know, governmental organizations are really helping us um, draw the line on what is and what is not applicable. For example, facial recognition is a really good example of this, which is is, you know, um, you know, a lot of organizations are very keen to, to do facial recognition because it can offer a couple of benefits, but there's also uh, increasing concerns from the public. So that type of communication, I think, is very critical. Um, again, we're seeing a lot of um, contributions from unions as well, um, you know, just to be able to, to voice different concerns to the table. We definitely need to see more of it, but that is how I would say, you know, I see the open ecosystem kind of playing out, which is different contributors are really providing valuable pieces of insight um, to the picture, whether it's Solely in the engineering domain, we have people saying, hey, you know, um, you know, user experience and, and human-centered AI, how do we actually achieve that? Or, you know, these are the exact types of things that we're looking at to debug the reliability of our model. Um, and this is how you could improve. Or, you know, when it comes to, to regulations and other aspects. So very, very broad picture. Again, this is just my snippet and point of view towards it. But I, again, I'm very optimistic about where we're headed. What, what are, as you look to the, this is such a fast uh, growing uh, topic and segment and an area that has, is really, I think, uh, uh, created a lot of, of uh, interest and curiosity among the general public. We see a lot happening right now with the advances of ChatGPT and many people playing around with it and commenting on, on, on its, its advances and so on. As you think about kind of the medium term, what are some, some new aspects of artificial intelligence that particularly excite you, Rhea? 
I would say cognitive computing, uh, Peter. It's uh, something that's been um, growing and uh, it's something that I am just starting to learn about as well. Uh, don't get me wrong, natural language processing is a fantastic. We're seeing the improvements with uh, chat GPT and, and other applications. Um, we also see the general concerns around the use of these technologies for you know a variety of different applications, whether that's you know authoring text and, and things like that. I think cognitive computing is a really interesting paradigm where we're trying to bring in elements that are very, very interesting um, in to AI systems. There's one domain of this um, in our Intel Labs team. They're also pioneering some great work here, collaborating with a number of different um, wonderful teams in industry, um, you know, around graph neural networks. Um, and I think the, the idea that we can build and map out a database of different scenarios, different, for example, pain points or opportunities and have AI models have access to that type of database to respond accordingly is very fascinating to me. Also, from an explainable AI perspective and a trustworthy AI perspective, um, I feel like, you know, both engineers and different types of stakeholders would like to see that type of mapping uh, because it's easier for us to understand what knowledge source that an AI model is relying on to make a decision compared to what we are seeing a little bit with, you know, current uh, neural networks that are out there, um, which is, you know, black box, you, you basically, you know, we've seen it. I, I'm sure you've heard of it, like prompt engineering, you're kind of entering in a prompt, you're trying to figure out what the model is going to do. But I feel like, you know, with, with graph databases, graph neural networks, that might change. You know, we're having more control over what an AI model has access to. Um, so cognitive computing is definitely something I think is interesting. Physics-based modeling is actually really interesting to me. Um, for a short time, I worked with Intel Labs on a collaboration on reinforcement learning and intuitive physics, which is a really, really interesting concept. It's really the idea of how, as humans, you know, someone throws up a baseball, we're able to catch it. Uh, we're doing a lot of inherent physics calculations in our head um, for that. And how do we get that capability into AI models? So um, back when I first, you know, was um, you know, working as an intern at Intel, um, my team kind of tasked me with, you know, trying to start to create those types of models. So we um, ended up, my mentor and I created a reinforcement learning framework from scratch, and we started to, to identify and play around with some of these things. And now I see it's a very, very popular trend. In the past two years, it's like boomed. Um, and, you know, being able to use AI models to create complex physical interactions, modeling, you know, water and, and cloth, you know, and just seeing how they move. So that's another really exciting thing. Um, for me, uh, cognitive computing and, and you know reinforcement learning and physics-based modeling, I'd say, uh, interest-worthy. That's where so uh, that's why I chose this field, which is how are we actually you know working towards um, as you know a community or as a set of communities towards the the better development of AI towards you know human-centered AI and those types of applications. So I'd say those are the three domains that really excite me. Very, very interesting. I wanted to mention also, Ria, a fascinating aspect of your background. You you came to technology very early. You actually graduated from high school when you were 11 years old. You joined Intel uh, roughly four and a half years ago when you were 14. Thus, you are still a teenager, and yet uh, the, the, you have grown so remarkably in your career, clearly. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about your roots in technology and, and uh, how, you, how you developed an interest so early uh, in pursuing a career in it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, it was definitely um, the community that uh, got me to this place. I think um, it's um, interest from um, and, you know, the enthusiasm that my parents showed, teachers, mentors, um, that kind of led me to this space. So both of my parents are um, you know, computer scientists. Uh, they come from very interesting backgrounds. Um, my mom also has a, a PhD in philosophy that she recently gained as well. So um, she is always kind of in, in my life, adding that kind of very interesting touch to where things we're constantly, you know, talking about things like, you know, AI models. We love to have little uh, debates around that, too, especially the, the hottest one is around, you know, AI um, reading our thoughts. 
which is very interesting. And her, uh, she advocates for, you know, uh, AI models aren't really capable of reading our thoughts because where do our thoughts come from? It's just a, such an interesting question. You know, we don't think about that in AI space. And, and my perspective is, oh, you know, maybe we can reach some sort of a close simulation with like graph neural networks or graph databases. But, you know, philosophy just brings a completely different angle to things. You know, where, you know, where you know, thoughts coming from is just such an advanced question. So I think um, that definitely contributes to my background. I feel like I am so um, grateful to be part of the ethical AI and trustworthy AI space because I get to think about those questions as part of my day-to-day -day job. Um, when we're designing experiences, you know, it helps me think about what is the distinction between humans and AI systems and, you know, what really are the capabilities, even if you're reaching, you know, indistinguishable types of, you know, content like, um, authoring from AI models or like physics-based modeling, what really are the distinctions between human and AI systems and where are we headed and keeping yourself open. And um, yeah, I think I would say the same for, for my dad as well. Um, he works in the security domain. There's a lot of interesting conversations that comes up there. Definitely not a lot of questions around value prop. Everyone knows the value prop of what happens with the security incident. Um, and I would definitely say my, my teachers and, and the community around them as well. Um, interestingly, Peter, I was uh, first thinking about going into a neuroscience background. Um, but then, you know, I did a, a tiny internship um, at uh, Yale um, with uh, Dr. Ham Hal Blumenfeld um, in, you know, the Clinical Neuroscience Imaging Center there. And uh, that was my first introduction to computational neuroscience. We were using statistical analysis on fMRI images um, for correlates of human consciousness. It's a pretty big thing. We took that idea and then narrowed it down to a specific experiment. Um, that was one of the first things that introduced me to the computational side of things. And I was doing my bachelor's in computer science. That also introduced me to AI. Uh, when I was little, I used to say I wanted to specialize in neural cryptography, which was, you know, a domain that was applying neural networks for cryptographic operations and security. Since then, I broadened my focus. I got introduced to AI and data science, and I fell in love with it. So that's why I'm here. Um, and yeah, teachers and mentors encouraged it. They pushed me and challenged me to do better and bigger in, in projects, and that's where I'm. Uh, it kind of led me to where I am now, especially my mentors at Intel. They um, were always encouraging me, you know, keep that neuroscience background, keep that philosophy background and, and see what you can do. And I feel like that has influenced me to where I am today in AI ethics um, and trusted AI. And I'm very, very happy. So, yeah, that's a little bit on my journey. Uh, what a remarkable story. Thank you for sharing it, Ria. I mentioned in the introduction, you're also uh, have written poetry, had, had uh, a poetry published as well as a, 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 uh, um, a book for children. I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about your interest in writing as well and, and uh, whether you still, do you still find time for it by chance? I do. I try to. Uh, I think uh, to be completely straightforward, not recently, but poetry is just such a beautiful medium, um, Peter. I think it's just um, so amazing uh, to be able to anchor on a specific experience or emotion and to like let words flow. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, I, I know I, I've been, you know, I keep up to date with regular updates in the men mental health space. You know, it's just something that is so prevalent, especially after the pandemic, to keep, you know, an eye on. And I know that there are a couple of, you know, new, you know, people in communities that are getting introduced to poetry as a way to just relax and, and also um, analyze your emotions. And I think it's just such a beautiful experience. So I definitely uh, try to keep up to date with it. I do blog on technical content. My mom is always uh, telling me to, to come into the philosophy and the art side. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to keep connected to that part. I think it's what really gives us that beauty and that sense of, you know, um, something bigger than us. Uh, that kind of keeps us anchored and also gives us awe to really look at things. Um, especially, um, you know, it's very, very uh, easy to get down in the dumps with um, 
working and ethical AI, to be completely straightforward, because you're seeing a lot of concerns about harms, about misappropriation, about the use of AI for, um, you know, discriminating certain populations all the time in the news. Um, and, you know, there's a struggle towards what we can do towards that and also, you know, you know, the boundaries that we have as well um, towards, you know, the technology and what we are capable of and what fields that we're working in that can impact that technology. Um, and, and how much we can do to mitigate it. So I think that uh, connecting it back to that, you know, overall perspective of this appreciation for life is definitely very, very helpful. Um, whether it's, you know, this tiny technical debug challenges of can we actually even explain this AI model in the first place to, you know, something more like, you know, where exactly are we headed with AI systems? How good really are AI systems? And what's the hype around them? Um, yeah, the po poetry for me really puts it together. And then, yeah, so I owe that to my mom. That's not really a, a credit that I can take. She's the one who, who balances me across these two things. And I am very, very happy to see in the mental health space that it's being accommodated as a very, very good medium because uh, from firsthand experience, it really is. It's beautiful. That's wonderful. What a great story. Well, uh, Ria Cheruvu, thank you so much for taking time with me. It's been wonderful to get to know you and your story a bit better. Thank you so much for sharing your insights across a wide uh, array of things related to artificial intelligence uh, that, that are within your, your scope. It's been, it's been a great conversation. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate it. Really loved you know, the, the flow of the conversation. And yeah, thank you.